Let's go to Acts chapter 5 again this week. We're studying the book of Acts on Sunday nights, and we're making some observations and applications along the way of what it means to be a church in action. We've seen a lot already in this chapter, too much to try to recap over the last five messages here in chapter 5. I'm going to give you a long story short. God was working mightily through the apostles in Jerusalem. Many were being healed. The gospel was being preached. And this enraged the Sadducees, so they put the apostles in prison. The council had commanded them in the previous chapter not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, but they said, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And they went on preaching Christ. That's an amen right there. Now they're in prison again. They've disobeyed the the council again by preaching Christ. But God sent an angel of the Lord that night, rescued them from the prison, and told them to get right back to the temple preaching Christ again. And they obeyed, and guess what? They were arrested again for the same offense. The council and the religious leaders in Jerusalem figured that their threats would be enough to stop the followers of Jesus' doctrine. After all, they had crucified their leader not too, not too long ago from here. And they figured this was going to end all this, but it only led to more growth. And when the apostles were brought in to answer, the high priest said to them, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. How did they spread God's doctrine all over Jerusalem? They simply obeyed God. There was no fancy program. They didn't have door packets. I'm not knocking the door packets, obviously. They were just faithful. They just preached. God said, go and preach. That's what they did. And God blessed them. All Jerusalem's filled with the doctrine. This movement's continuing to grow. They were just simply obedient to God. And now their motives are being brought into question. They have essentially been charged with sedition of trying to get the people stirred up against the council. But remember from last week, our hardships could be the goodness of God to the lost. God uses our hardships, He uses our circumstances and our trials to bring us into scenarios where we will be with the lost and somebody who needs the gospel and And that enables us an opportunity to share Christ. And so the goodness of God to the lost may come at a price for us. But what's more important? Amen? Amen. Why are we here? We're here to reach people for Christ. There's some other things that are great about our faith, but the reason we're here ultimately is because we're to be telling others that they need Jesus Christ. And so God was being merciful to these lost men by giving them a clear gospel presentation. God used the hardships of the apostles to arrange a scenario where all of the religious leaders in Jerusalem would be assembled at one time and they all could hear the gospel in one moment. Well, Peter and the apostles, they answered back, we ought to obey God rather than men. 
And Peter boldly preached what they were commanded not to preach. (laughs) He preached Christ. These are powerful and educated men that these fishermen are standing before and preaching the gospel to. And when these uneducated men preach the gospel, when those who were there heard it, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. And surely after being cut to the heart, hearing such wonderful news as Jesus saves, the council's going to repent, they're going to receive Christ as their Savior, become followers of His doctrine, and they're going to disband the whole thing. Who could reject so great salvation? Well, they did. Instead of being cut to the heart in a way that moved them to repentance to God, they're cut to the heart in a way that moved them to take counsel to slay the apostles. What wonderful news Jesus saves. Now we want to kill you. Well, if it wasn't for God intervening tonight, as we'll see in our text, I believe they may have killed them this day. But God's going to intervene, and they're only going to be beaten and then let go. And so with that, we need to pick up where we left off by reading verses 34 through 42 of Acts chapter 5. The Bible says, Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, You men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that ye, what ye intend to do as touching these men, For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all and as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, And let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. (laughs) And look at verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's awesome. So as we're in this court scene, I, maybe you can kind of picture this. There's probably 116 of these religious leaders present, and there's these 12 um, apostles. They've been brought in. They've been commanded, don't teach in Jesus' name, and yet that's what they're doing. And the council is, is outraged. They're ready to kill the apostles. I kind of picture like, you know, old footage of like British parliament and stuff, you know. Like they're pretty boisterous and they get kind of rambunctious. And, and I can see this scene just kind of almost getting out of hand here as they're ready to kill these men for preaching Christ right in front of them when they've said not to. They've been arrested three times for doing this and yet they're still preaching Christ. And we see in verse 34, God... I'm giving God the credit here for moving into the heart of this man, uh, Gamaliel. And I, I, I always say Gamaliel, and I'm trying to say it right, so if I stutter a little bit, forgive me. Uh, I believe the proper pronunciation is Gamaliel. Now, isn't it amazing how God can use His enemies for His own cause when He so chooses? Now, if there's one Pharisee in the Bible I, I wish would have gotten saved, it was Gamaliel. 
Gamaliel. <laughs> He's only mentioned twice. But he had a major impact on Christianity as a lost man. In, in fact, he may have had the greatest impact in the first century of any lost man. And, and how did he make such a difference? Well, here we see that he's intervening here. He's a voice of reason among re- unreasonable men. And it leads to the apostles being let go, which certainly had an impact on Christianity. Amen. Um, but also later on in the book of Acts, we'll learn in chapter 22 that he once had a very important disciple named Saul of Tarsus, who later became the apostle Paul. And I can't help but think that Gamaliel's in-depth teaching helped Saul understand the corrupted oral law of Judaism in such a way that as the Apostle Paul, he was then able to make a thorough and convincing argument against uh, that law and contrast, be able to contrast so clearly law and grace as we read in his writings. And who better to make that case among the Hebrews than someone like Paul? Amen. I mean, he's been trained by this man. He, he knows uh, Judaism inside and out. He was once a Pharisee, and I believe the Apostle Paul, for, for some of these reasons, is the man who penned the book of Hebrews. Even though we don't know for sure, it, it makes logical sense that the Apostle Paul would have been the, the, the penman of Hebrews, and I say, why not? Who better than him to be able to make such, a, such an argument in the book of Hebrews that Christ is better than every aspect of the law? Amen. And, and certainly he would have understood that being a Hebrew himself. And Paul said of himself in Acts 26.5 that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And Gamaliel's heritage was a very... Although Gamaliel goes down in history as a more liberal rabbi, his grandfather was very strict. And I'll say more about him, I think, in just a minute. But anyway... Paul says, I was in that straightest sect of our religion. In Philippians 3, 5, he called himself an Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he said, as touching the law of Pharisee. And he learned this way of life from Gamaliel. In Acts 22, 3, it's, Paul uh, said this, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Sis... Uh, <laughs> All right. A city that he was born in. Cilicia, (laughs) there we go. Look, I'm trying hard to pronounce these things right. I'm just an uneducated fisherman. All right. I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye are all this day. And so Gamaliel was so renowned in those days that Saul, even though he was born in Cilicia, he moved to Jerusalem just to learn from this man. Uh, He he had a huge impact. Uh, Gamaliel was a member of the council. At some point, uh, it is said that he became president over the Sanhedrin or the council. And we see in our text, uh, Gamaliel was a doctor of the law. He had a respected reputation among the people. And some of his clout may have been because of his lineage. As I was saying just a minute ago, his grandfather was the most noted and influential rabbi in all of Jewish history named Hillel. And Gamaliel was probably the most distinguished rabbi of his time. And 
the, the uninspired Jewish collection of oral traditions, and, and I think I can make the argument ungodly, that's what Jesus taught against. Um, in the Mishnah, it says of Gamaliel, from the time when Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, the honor of the Torah ceased, and purity and asceticism died. I mean, this man was held in high regard. And, and I, I give you that quote just to show you uh, how respected he was and how he is still revered in, in Judaism today. And because of his reputation, when a man like Gamaliel stands up and wants to speak, you give him the floor. You with me? This is the kind of man he is. He is a leader among leaders. He has authority among those in authority because he's the one that commands that they take the apostles and move them out of the room and they obey him. This guy, you know, he's a big deal. And so he stands up, they give him the floor, and he commands the apostles be put forth a little space, which means he didn't want the apostles hearing what he had to say. He didn't, number one, he doesn't want them to be encouraged by what he's about to say, but he also is showing respect to the council and the high priest. And in verses 35 through 39, I gave you all that background just to say that this guy was important in those days. And in verses 35 through 39, Gamaliel, he speaks. And I wish we knew his mind. I wish we knew his motives. I wish we knew his heart, whether or not he's kicking against the pricks, as Saul would say of himself later. And I say that because as you read his response, it just makes you wonder where his heart was at. Was he pro the apostles? Was he questioning whether this thing was really of God? Where was he at? And in A.T. Robertson's word pictures, he is of the opinion, quote, Gamaliel champions the cause of the apostles as a Pharisee to score a point against the Sadducees. He acts as a theological opportunist, not as a disciple of Christ. And from what I've read, I can see where that would be true. You'll remember that the resurrection's at the heart of the issue here. That was originally why Peter and John got arrested at the temple because the Sadducees heard them preaching the resurrected Christ. They didn't like it, got mad, ran in and arrested them, and that's what this is all about. Well, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, though none of them believed in the resurrection of Christ. The, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all. And so it could be that Gamaliel here is just, hey, this is an opportunity for me to get one up on the Sadducees here. And so maybe he is just being theologically opportunist. I don't know, but... It could be, but I would also say it's likely that Gamaliel heard John the Baptist. There was a group of Pharisees that came out to see him. Remember that? It's likely that he probably heard Jesus teaching at the temple at some point. Um, we, we know the Pharisees showed up there. And we know that he's already seen two of his colleagues, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, convert to Jesus' doctrine. He likely witnessed the day of Pentecost when those unlearned Galileans are all of a sudden speaking in other languages. He witnessed thousands become followers of Jesus' doctrine in Jerusalem already. He's seen the miraculous healings here in this chapter, and he's seen the people magnify these believers. And in the previous chapter, he most likely would have been among those who marveled at how these ignorant fishermen wielded the Scriptures. And he would have been among those who took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. And so while he may be acting opportunistically here, I'm also, as I read this, I hold out hope that perhaps he's putting some things together and he's genuinely pondering whether all of this is of God. 
Does anybody else kind of do that as you're reading it? And, and so I don't know about you, but as I read this account, I find myself rooting for him. And I'm thinking, okay, man, if he could just come to Christ, that'd be great. But sadly, according to secular history, he lived and died as a Pharisee. And it appears that Gamaliel never came to faith in Christ. In fact, a couple years before he died, he ordered a prayer against Christians. So I don't know that he ever came to faith in Christ. But he begins in verse 35 by saying, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. He's wanting them to be cautious. You guys better pump the brakes. You're wanting to kill these men? I think you ought to just hold off that this is not an ordinary case before us. And I think Gamaliel is remembering there are thousands of people out there that are followers of this doctrine. There's probably thousands more earlier in this chapter who have been healed that are magnifying this doctrine. And we ought to be very careful how we proceed here because we don't want this to get out of hands. Because if it gets out of hand, it's going to get the attention of the Romans. Remember all that? And they might come and take away their city and their, their country. And so no doubt some of that's probably in his mind. And, and so he's saying, don't act out of zeal. Not zeal alone. But we need, to, we need to come through this slowly. And if you study this man's life, he had that kind of temper. He, he proceeds to give two historical examples to lead up to his ultimate point. And the first is in verse 36. It's of a man named Thutis. He boasted himself to be somebody. I know some men like that. Amen. 400 men joined him. But then he mentions when he was killed, all who obeyed him were scattered, and his movement came to nothing. We've seen some of that in our lifetime, haven't we? Men who have raised up, and uh, the 30th anniversary of Waco was not too long ago, and that reminded me of, of all that and how when David Koresh died, that movement came to an end. Was that his name? Did I get it right? It was on your birthday. You ought to know. Um, amen. You ought to study that week in history. It's amazing what all is taking place in that week and what all has happened on April the 19th. Uh, just a very important week in history. And so anyway... 400 men join him, he's killed, they scatter, and that's the end of that. Then in verse 37, he mentions Judas of Galilee. He also led a sizable following. We're not given the amount, but he perished. Or it means he was destroyed. It's the same Hebrew words you'll find in the Bible when in Matthew 2.13, Herod would seek the young child to destroy him. It's the same thing. And so this man, it's not just that he died, he was destroyed. And so he was killed as well. And once he was off the scene, his followers were dispersed. And given these historical references that Gamaliel is mentioning, I wonder if he's surprised that this movement of Jesus' doctrine is actually growing still. Jesus is dead in his mind, right? He's been crucified, he's off the scene, and yet here we are, three, four months, whatever it is, away from the crucifixion, and this thing is growing. And I, surely with his examples, he's got to be thinking something, I don't know, but... Um, he's, he's got to be wondering, we, we saw Thutis die, we saw Judas of Galilee die, we've seen Jesus of Nazareth die, and surely, like the other two, this, this momentum is going to end, these people are going to dis disperse, and that'll be the end of all this. Regardless of what he was thinking, we know what he's getting at, right? Um, Thutis, Judas of Galilee, Jesus being put to death, meaning if Jesus was just another man, Remember, the, the, the resurrection's at the heart of this. If Jesus is just another man who lived and died, 
And he was, then he was just another one of these imposters. He was another one of these deceivers who was able to come up, gather people to him, have this movement, and then die and this thing go away. And that's obviously what Gamaliel's getting at. In other words, the death of Jesus would be the death of this movement. If you smite the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And that's true because when Jesus was first arrested, what happened to the, the disciples? They all forsook him and fled. They scattered. And, and after Jesus was scourged and crucified, they're, they're in hiding, out of fear. And, and so that is a true statement. And now, all of a sudden, these men, when their shepherd was smitten, all of a sudden, these men are now boldly preaching Christ. Study the resurrection, amen? It's, it's just amazing that Jesus said, that's the sign I'll give you, because it all hinges on that. And, and we see that once Jesus rose again, these men who had scattered, these men who were in hiding, all of a sudden they're going before the council and they're preaching with great boldness and great authority in the Word of God. This was supposed to end Christianity. They're not calling it that yet, but it was supposed to end all of this. And instead of ending, it's growing. The logical conclusion by all those listening to Gamaliel, if this doesn't die soon, Maybe their leader is alive. Otherwise, this, this, this whole movement is effectively over. It'll be done before the first century's out, which, by the way, happened the other way around. And really, they should be able to tell this movement isn't dying off because already there's far more followers now than there were when Jesus was with them physically. There's way more. Remember, right after He was crucified, there's only 120 in the upper room. And now there's thousands of people that have been touched by this and thousands that have joined. And so it's growing more that Jesus isn't physically with them. They're not dispersing. They're solidifying, right? It's not coming to naught, but it's growing. And this should have alerted them that perhaps there's maybe something to the rumors that Jesus had risen again and that He had ascended back to God. And you got to ask yourself, why else would these followers be so bold to follow and preach the same doctrine Right? Why else would they be out there preaching the same doctrine that got Jesus crucified if they didn't know Jesus had risen again? And now in verses 38 and 39, after giving two historical examples, Gamaliel makes his point. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. And when we read when he says, and now... He is about to give his opinion about how he feels in the moment. He's not commanding, he's recommending uh, this present time. The way I see it right now, refrain from these men and let them alone. And I would think somewhere in, in Gamaliel's thinking is the knowledge of how popular this movement has become. And that if these apostles are killed, it's, gonna, it's going to incite a riot. And so he's probably thinking, we just need to hold off. After Gamaliel suggests that they let the apostles go, he says, For if this counsel or this work be of men, it'll come to naught. And in verse 39, he contrasts that with the work of God. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And so we see how there were men on the council who had a form of godliness, right? But they denied the power thereof. They, they, they had a form of godliness, they were still missing it all together, though. Right? 
This is why I'm cautious on who I take my teachings from. Do you believe Christ rose again? Why am I listening to you? Well, that went over well. Anyway, let, let me just get on track here. If it's of men, it's going to fail. If it's of God, it can't be stopped. Now, it's interesting to me, I was hinting at this earlier, how these men never learned to turn this around and apply it to themselves. Because Judaism doesn't exist anymore. Biblical Judaism went out when Christ died. The veil in the temple was written twain from top to bottom. That was it. Amen. There is no temple today. There is no high priest. There is no Levitical priesthood. Are you with me? And so they, they didn't see how to turn this around and apply it to themselves because they were completely destroyed in 70 A.D. In fact, secular history records Gamaliel's son ended up getting beheaded when the Romans came in in 70 A.D. According to one of their most revered and renowned rabbis, it must not have been of God. It must have been a men. They must have been fighting against God. Isn't that what he said? If it's of men, it's, it's going to fail. If it's of God, you can't stop it. Well, I don't see it today. Well, this is getting, this is getting me nowhere. Um, and so now, these are sound words by Gamaliel. But, but understand, listen, they, they are fit for this situation. I, I say that because we need to be careful how much we try to adopt this mindset. Because there's a, there, there's a move where this mindset is adopted as good for standard practice. Because, listen, these words are an uninspired lost man. Be careful applying all of this as, it's in, as, it's, as if it's inspired Scripture. Some people use this idea of, of Gamaliel's words to suggest, hey, don't worry about confronting people in error. Don't worry about confronting false doctrine because if it's of God, it's going to last. If it's of men, it's going to fail. I'm sure you've heard it. Maybe you've gotten that counsel. But understand, these words have to be taken in context. Don't forget, Gamaliel only takes this position after this same counsel had put Jesus to death. Why didn't he take this position when Jesus was on trial? Be careful how you handle this man because if it's of God, it's... You can't stop it. If it's a man, it'll fail. No, he didn't do that. So we need to understand the council had already interfered and opposed the believers by having Jesus crucified before Gamaliel gives his opinion here. And so his neutral recommendation to let this play out is only after they had worked to bring about a desired result. Am I making sense? Let's let this play out. We've already killed Jesus. And so be careful here with how you take this position it may be fitting for some situations, but not all. It's interesting, Gamaliel, uh, Gamaliel is really rejecting all evidence before him that Jesus was alive based upon his own historical examples. He just gave these examples. It ought to tell him with this momentum growing that the leader did not die. And yet he's rejecting all evidence. And so truly their minds were blinded, as Paul wrote later on. And so don't jump on this, gam, this Gamaliel neutrality bandwagon too fast. We can't look at everything and take the approach of do nothing and simply say, if it's of men, it'll fail. If it's of God, it'll endure. 
You can't do that. There's religions that have been around for thousands of years and have millions of followers. Does that mean it's of God? No, so you can't, you can't just take this as a blanket way of theology. And we're not just to be neutral and, and sit back and, and see how everything plays out. But when we have clear Bible to refute a fundamental doctrine, we should confront and oppose false teaching. Now you can do that without being a jerk. And you ought to. Amen? There's no sense in being ugly. But we ought to make a stand for the truth of God's Word. Gamaliel's words may have been good for this moment of time when cooler heads were needed in this situation before the council kills these men, but Jesus doesn't advocate for us to remain neutral. In fact, Jesus' own, own words in, in Luke eleven twenty three, He's saying, neutrality is opposition against me. This is what He said, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth. So while there may be times when Gamaliel's um, words here are applicable, maybe prudent in certain contexts, we can't make it our standard of dealing with false doctrine. Amen. The apostles aren't taking this approach. They're not just sitting back and saying, well, if, if this whole corrupted form of Judaism is of God, it'll succeed. If it's of men, uh, it'll, it'll die. They're not doing that. No, they're out there confronting it. When they're brought before the council, guess what? They're preaching Christ. They don't just say, well, you know what? We didn't mean to offend anybody, and we understand that if you're of God, you'll succeed, and if we're of men, we'll fail. No, 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 they're not doing that. They're preaching Christ. They're preaching Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And so they understood that their form of Judaism was of man. And so they boldly confront it when they're before them, and they openly are proclaiming Christ to all around them. Now, one thing we all can agree on in verse 39 is that that verse is certainly true. Amen? Look at what it says. If it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it. That's good. Lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. Say, man, these lost men, some of them had good doctrine. Yeah, but they were off in some areas, right? And God can use anybody, isn't that right? God used Cyrus the Persian. Amen? God can use an, an unsaved president. God can use anybody. And, and here I believe He's using this man. And so this is true. If it's of God, you can't stop it or else you're fighting against God if you try to overthrow it. And, and I want to let Albert Barnes do the preaching here for me because I, I was going to try to slice and dice this so you thought I came up with it, but it's too good. Uh, he's, he wrote this, quote, In this respect, the remark may be applied to the Christian religion. It has stood too long and in too many circumstances of prosperity and adversity to be of men. It has been subjected to all trials from its pretended friends and real foes, and it still lives as vigorous and flourishing as ever. Other kingdoms have changed. Empires have risen and fallen since Gamaliel spoke this. Systems of opinion and belief have had their day and expired but the preservation of the Christian religion unchanged through so many revolutions and in so many fiery trials shows that it is not of men, but of God. The argument for the divine origin of the Christian religion from its... <laughs> I knew I was going to get stuck on this word. Um, from its... <laughs> uh, help me out here, Adrian. Perpetuity. Did I say it right? Perpetuity. 
I hope I said that right. I, <laughs> I kept laughing every time I read this at home and I was studying, trying to put this together. I was like, I'm going to mess this word up. I almost wrote it in Ebonics just so I could get it right. But um, <laughs> anyway, the argument of the divine origin of the Christian religion from its uh, <laughs> perpetuity. What is it? Perpetuity. Let, let's try this one more time so the podcast will sound like I'm educated. The argument of the divine origin of the Christian religion from its per... <laughs> All right, we're just going to move on, amen. I'll record it later and I'll insert it right there. It'll be like the voice on the computer. Perfect. Um, anyway, he says, it's one that can be applied to no other system that has been or that now exists. For Christianity has been opposed in every form. It confers no temporal conquest and appeals to no base and strong native passions. Mohammedism is supported by the sword and the state. And that's true. Paganism relies on the arm of the civil power and of terrors of superstition and is sustained by all the corrupt passions of men. Atheism and infidelity have been short-lived, varying in their forms, dying today and tomorrow starting up in a new form, never organized, consolidated, or pure, and never tending to promote the peace or happiness of men. Christianity without arms or human power has lived, holding its steady and triumphant movements among men, regardless alike of the opposition of its foes and of the treachery of its pretended friends. And he goes on to state this, they have reviled it, have persecuted it, have resorted to argument and to ridicule and sword. They have called in the aid of science, but all has been in vain. The more it has been crushed, the more it has risen and still exists with as much life and power as ever. The preservation of this religion amidst so much and so varied opposition proves that it is of God. No severe trial can await it than it has already experienced. And as it has survived so many storms and trials... We have every evidence that according to the predictions, it is destined to live and to fill the world, end quote. That's good, amen? It can't be stopped. It's of God. Listen, even in communist China, there's revivals breaking out. You can't stop it. What did Paul say later on when he's arrested? Oh, I think over in Ephesians. The Word of God cannot be bound. It's going to get its work done. God is at work. And what Albert Barnes wrote there, it's really an amazing thought when you meditate upon it. Christianity has been attacked and opposed in every land. Even here. And it's getting worse. It's been attacked in so many ways, but the church of the living God continues to march on. And we know she will be here when our Lord returns. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's just something about that name. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a glorious and victorious thought, amen? True Christianity has stood the test of time because Jesus rose again. God is on her side. There is no other logical explanation for this to have continued in every language nation, tribe, people, that we're still here today, that on every continent the gospel's being preached. The enemies of God have thrown all they can at His, His church and His Word, but we're still here tonight. We're still here tonight. 
We still have God's Word. Churches are still meeting. This is of God. It cannot be overthrown. This is such a thought. Listen to me, please. Don't miss the miracle of church. Don't miss the miracle of coming in here tonight. This isn't some game that we're playing. Satan would love to shut us down. But here we are. He would love to stop the press, but God willing, it'll be rolling tomorrow night. Satan would love to close our academy, but we're still going to have class tomorrow. Amen? Amen? Satan would love to stop our vans, our music, our preaching, and yet here we are. Why? Because we're on the winning side. Amen. Yep. I love being on the winning side. Amen. Amen. I don't like this mindset today. Well, you're all winners. No, you're not. You lost, buddy. So long as we keep God's Word as our authority, so long as we keep Jesus as the sacred head of this body, and so long as all glory belongs to Him in this church, then Liberty Baptist Tabernacle is on solid footing. And I'm just privileged to be a part of it all. And I mean that with all my heart. It is a privilege to be here. How exciting that we get to carry on the torch of liberty in this generation. And yet, some gatherings with the church are just a chore to some people. Yeah, you knew I'd get cantankerous at some point. You come in here and it's just the time you go to sleep. I know that person can't hear me because they're sleeping. It's just the place where you come in here and you pick apart people. It's just the place where you leave complaining about what you've heard and the preacher who gave it. Yeah, you know what's happening is you're missing the miracle. We come in here and we sing half-heartedly. Mary Hart doeth good like a medicine, but you're on the broken spirit side. We tune out the preaching. We look at our watches because we're ready to get home. We aren't stirred. We aren't challenged. We aren't changed. We don't fall on our faces at the altar before God. We just check the box. We leave in the same way that we came in. What's happening? You're you're missing the miracle. You're missing that we are of God and that this cannot be stopped. No, this is just something we got to do. All right, honey, I'll be there because I don't want to hear you huffing at me. All right, well, that was for somebody. You know, don't come in here and miss the reason for all that we do. Really, when you think about it, these men suffered for us. They didn't see that far down the road, I'm sure. What if we viewed this tonight for what it really is? What if we understood why we were gathering? What if we truly believed that we are a product of God's blessing upon us? What if we understood that God was for us, and if God be for us, who can be against us? What if we truly understood that if, if, if God is for us and all of this really meant something, what if we understood this to the point of we would get busy? Can you imagine what we would do? I'll tell you what we would do. We would fill Rapid City with our doctrine. Why? Because all of this would no longer just be something we do on Sunday. You know what? You'd come back Wednesday night because you'd be hungry to pray with God's people. Listen, I'm not up here playing games. All right? This isn't a job for me. There's, there's many other things I could do for much more money. Amen. That's just the fact. 
I'm here because God's called me here, but I'm also here because I want to see God do something great. And I don't come in here just playing games. You say, every single time you come in here, you're glad to be here? No, I didn't say that. I understand life gets in the way. I understand there's hardships, and I know there's deep waters. I get all that. But what I'm saying is we ought to understand that we are God's people tonight. God is on our side. We cannot be stopped because it is of God. I'm not worried about inflation. Listen, I showed you the numbers when we turned over the new year. We saw more come in last year than we've ever seen. Over a million dollars came through this church in the midst of high prices. Why? Because you can't stop it. <laughs> anyway, I, I, maybe I'm preaching to myself here and just trying to pump myself up because some of you look like you're, you're ready to go. Don't miss what it is we're about. Don't miss it. Almighty Father, thank You tonight for Your Word. Thank You that we can open it. We can learn from it. We can read this account and we can understand That if it's of you, it cannot be stopped. And if it's of men, it'll, it'll fail. And Lord, if we get in our own flesh, if we cease to give you the glory, then it'll be of us. And it will close. But if we keep our eyes on you, if we give you all the glory, if we remember why it is we're here, this cannot be stopped. And they may force us underground and all the rest, but it cannot be stopped. God, I pray for that soul tonight that's in here that is just here. Their mind is on some program or some situation or something that has nothing to do with this. I pray you'd work in that heart and that you would bring us together of one mind that we might strive together for the gospel. We would understand that we are blessed, that we are on the winning side. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, get a hold of our hearts. Teach us how frail we are. That we have to rely on you and look to you and live for you. and Honor and glorify you. God, help this church to not be complacent. To not just view this as some inconvenience in the week. But to understand that we get an opportunity to come in here to meet with you collectively. I love you. And I pray that you would do something wonderful in our midst, that every soul here would know that your good hand is upon us and that it's because if it's of you, it cannot be stopped. So do a work now, I pray in our hearts, for Jesus' sake. Amen.